Over the last few weeks and months in church, we've been um, working our way through Matthew and hearing some of the stories, some of the things Jesus taught about what his new kingdom was going to be like. So I'm going to tell you a story this morning. It's a slightly imagined story, but it's related to when Jesus called Matthew, when he first met Matthew and called him to follow him, he said, come and follow me. And he went to Matthew's house and he had dinner. And this is the story of that dinner. Matthew looked around the table and counted. Ten guests, six dishes, five stacks of thin flatbread, and eight, no, nine bottles of his best wine. Matthew couldn't help himself. Counting was on his mind. Counting was in his blood. Counting was his business. Counting. And tables. Matthew'd sat behind the one and done the other for as long as he could remember. Because counting was what a tax collector's job demanded. So much for the masters back in Rome. So much for the men who watched his back. And so much, of course, for Matthew. Matthew grinned as he remembered. Count well and you could count on a pretty good living. And if the taxpayers should complain or the accountants in Rome grew suspicious, then you could usually fob them off with just a little more creative counting. A few more denarii, please. Another pile of coins, sir. Yes, that's right, ma'am. I need both of your chickens. It's hardly my fault that they're the last you've got. Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. That was his mantra. And his bully boys were always there to back up those words with a broken arm or a twisted neck. Was it any wonder then that he was hated and despised and left to socialise with the rest of society's outcasts? Matthew looked around the table and counted... The table was full of outcasts. But how many of his friends had imagined they would ever be sitting here? Not Daniel, drunk from the day he could carry a bottle. Nor Caleb, the conman. Nor Benjamin, the womanizer. Nor Jacob, the thief. But here they were, eating and drinking and joking around with a rabbi of all people. A rabbi! It didn't add up. No matter which way Matthew counted... He'd never had time for religion, do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, following the rules, keeping the traditions. It was just another kind of counting, as far as he could tell. The scribes and the priests and the Pharisees sat behind their tables too. They called them altars, of course, but it was just the same. And they stacked up good deeds and bad deeds as if they were piles of coins. Too much drink, too many women, too much gambling, too many lies. And in the end... When the counting was done, the answer was always the same. Not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. So what was the point? If he couldn't be good enough for them, how could he ever be good enough for God? Surely then it made sense to stay away from their tables altogether. And yet here he was at the table with a rabbi. Matthew looked around the table and counted. There was not one of his friends that anyone would even think of calling good. They were rogues, one and all. Rogues, himself included, and not even lovable rogues. They were dishonest, selfish, and mean. But this rabbi was still sitting there among them. And that's what counted the most. Matthew's friends had all asked him, Why? Why did you leave your job? Why did you give up your fortune? Why did you leave it all to follow him? And the answer was here, at the table. Rabbi Jesus was a good man. Matthew had no doubt of that. But unlike so many other religious people whom Matthew had met, Jesus did not make his goodness 
an excuse for judgment. He could be holy somehow without being holier than thou. He could eat with good people and bad people alike and treat them all with respect, treat them all the same. And if that's what lay at the heart of this new kingdom that Jesus was always going on about, then Matthew wanted to be part of it. Because when it came down to it, Matthew was tired of counting. Wherever he'd been, whatever he'd done, someone was always counting. Counting the taxes to see who owed the most. Counting the profits to see who was the richest. Counting the bad deeds to see who was the worst. Counting the good deeds to see who was the purest. But at this table, the table where Jesus sat, nobody was counting. And when nobody was counting, everybody counted. Good or bad, rich or poor, sinner or saint, God loved them all and welcomed them all to his table. Surely that's what Jesus was trying to say. And as for change, changing to be more like Jesus, who wouldn't want to be like him? Love life as he did. See through the hypocrisy, cut to the heart of things. Surely that invitation to come and follow and be changed was part of the equation as well. Matthew looked around the table again, looked at all his friends. Would they stay with Jesus? Would they follow? Would they change? Matthew couldn't tell. But one thing he did know, there was no chance of them following Jesus without some kind of welcome in the first place, without his acceptance, without his invitation, without this table. Thanks, Sam. Chrissy's going to come out and she's going to share with us just something of what she's been doing and what God's been doing through her and some others. There's the microphone. Thank you. Now, Chrissy, you were getting up something. You were quite busy a couple of weeks ago, weren't you? What were you doing? Well, yeah, the first week of the school holidays, which I think Monday the 25th of July, I was involved in our holiday Bible club, which we ran for a week over in the Troll Centre, which I've noticed you abbreviated to, which is very good. Seriously. Wonderful. And yeah. so what sort of things did you do there? Well, we had the whole range of primary age children and with Sam at the helm, we, um, we led the Bible Club with the title Kingdom Quest and we were split into four different age groups, um, Littleys, Middleys, yeah. two groups of Middleys and then the older years five and six. So yes, and it was actually um, a lovely, lovely time and we, we sort of had them split into groups but Sam had actually organised a rotation so we did craft, we did games, we did um, a bible discussion time and we had time, a little bit of downtime where we had juice etc. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. So it sounds like a lot of fun, sounds, sounds great um, and all learned about Jesus, that sounds wonderful yeah. but why did you do it? Why did I do it? Um, well, firstly, I did it because I was available. I, I work at a primary school. I'm a teaching assistant. Um, so I was, I was able to do it, firstly. Right. You, know, you may love, want to do it, but you're not able. Yes. But I was free and able to do it. Um, and I did it because it's important. I think it's really important to teach children the, the delights of the Bible yeah. and the truth of the Bible. I, I think these are the... Uh, yeah, the importance is, you know, the, the defining reason why I did it, yeah. because I think it's one of our most important 
tasks, really. Wonderful. To pass on to children how much God loves them. Fantastic. And that brings me to my next question. So what was the best bit for you? What was the best bit of the, the, the week? The best bit? Oh, there's so many lovely bits. I think if I were to summarise the best bits, it would be the unpredictability of children. I, I think some of the responses, and I mean, I think we all, all of us, parents, you know, all adults, I think we constantly underestimate children, not deliberately. I think it's just something we do. And they come out with such delightful truths or, or such questioning um, questions that they, they just amaze me. So I think that's what I enjoyed most was just the delightfulness of the things that they said, especially in the discussion time, which we had upstairs. And it was sort of 10, 15 minutes of really unpacking the story that, that Sam had delivered from the front to everybody. And um, the, the delightful responses. I was with the team who were five, six, seven, possibly. Yeah, five, six, seven ages. And they came out with some really testing questions and some delightful statements, a joy, a real joy. Fantastic. Yeah. And if there's someone sat in the congregation now who's thinking about maybe they'd like to get involved in children's or youth work, but they're not sure, what would you say to encourage them? I, I would say, by all means, do it. Because, it, you know, you could look at, oh, adults helping children, aren't they kind, aren't they wonderful doing that, helping the children? But actually... We learn so much. I always, always gain so much spiritually. Um, just, it's fun. It's great fun. And, you know, I don't have a degree in theology. I don't have a degree at all. Nor do I. I <laughs> <laughs> but I love the Bible and I love God. So, really, you know, and if you want to know more about the Bible, it's a great place to do it. Great. Because it's wonderful. You know, you get the gospel delivered so that a four-year-old can understand it. And that's the best way because it's very clear. And I gained a lot. I gained a lot from hearing the absolute basics because I think sometimes as adults we get caught up in mm. a lot of... I don't know what to say, really. I haven't thought about this part. A lot of um, superfluous bits yeah. and pieces, but you get the absolute truth delivered very yeah. well and very clearly. So, yeah. You're absolutely right. We do a very good job sometimes in the church of making very simple, easy to understand truth very complicated. We get, make it very complicated <laughs> and get ourselves in a bit of a tangle. Wonderful. But yeah, so if, I, if, if anybody is thinking about doing it or you have the opportunity to do it, then I, I would say do it because it's a blessing. Wonderful. A blessing in every way. Well, thanks so much, Chrissy. Thank you to you and to everybody else who was involved in the Absolutely, Holiday Club. Absolutely, yes. It was, uh, it was a super week, and, uh, and we must keep praying for our leaders, everyone who's involved in, in uh, youth and children's work, and also those kids who came along. So thank you very much. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing Chrissy forgot to mention, that she had her arm twisted by Sam as well. Let's just pray for those uh, children now, shall we, who came along to that holiday club, because many of them um, had no other connection to church at all apart from that holiday club. So, Father God, we thank you for the blessing of a vibrant children's work here in this church. We thank you for the wonderful connection we have with the church school and other schools in the area. Father, we just lift to you now each and every child, every small child who came to that holiday club, Father, we particularly pray for those who have no other connection to you, apart from through what they heard that week. We pray for their parents and their families as well. Lord, we pray that they would be safe in your hands and the seeds that were sown would grow and grow and grow into something beautiful. And may your kingdom grow through their lives. Please be seated for our reading. Continuing our readings of Jesus' parables as recorded by Matthew, 
This morning's begins at chapter 13, verse 53, and you can find this on page 980 of the Pew Bibles. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why his miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised, with an oath, to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a dish, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Slightly nervous now that I've got eight pages of superfluous detail that will make a truth, an easy truth, very complicated, but hopefully not. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would encourage us and you would challenge us and you would draw us ever closer to you. Amen. Why don't more people become Christians? Why, when people hear the gospel, when we introduce them to the person of Jesus, don't they fall to their knees and give their lives to him? Scientists tell us that the universe contains at least 100 billion galaxies, each with at least 100 billion stars. And yet, the universe is, for all intents and purposes, empty. If you were to randomly pick a set of coordinates somewhere in the universe, the chances of there being anything in that spot are one in a billion, trillion, trillion. So why, when people look at the night sky and see the most infinitesimal piece of that universe, do they still demand proof of God? How many times have you been faced with the statement, if God would just prove to me that he was there, I would believe. 
And how many times has your response been to try and prove it? Or how often have you met the standard, I would believe in Jesus, but then I look at Christians and you're all just a bunch of hypocrites? I'm sure that most of us at some point have been in conversations where we thought we were getting somewhere, we thought the gospel was getting through, but then suddenly a smokescreen is thrown up and the conversation is over, dead in the water. Because that's all those statements are. The demand for proof, the apparent hypocrisy of Christians, they're just a smokescreen. My mother-in-law is one of the best at throwing up a smokescreen. She's quite happy that we believe. She would say she believes in God. She definitely talks about praying. But as soon as you ask her about going to church or any real faith, it's a very different story. You know why I can't do that, is the response every one of us gets. And yes, we do know why. 35 years ago, approximately, the vicar in our church had an affair with a member of congregation. That's it. There have been three vicars at that church since then, and she apparently loved every one of them. She even likes Adrian. But still, the failings of one man, 35 years ago, keep her from going to church or having a relationship with Jesus. It used to drive me mad. The sheer nonsense of the whole thing was just infuriating. But then I realized that it's just that. It's nonsense. It's not a reason. It's an excuse. And the comebacks we get from our non-Christian friends and family are the same. They're not reasons. A lot of the time, the questions they have aren't real questions that they want answers to. The demands for proof don't mean that they really want proof. They're just excuses, and they're nothing new. Here in our passage from Matthew, we see Jesus faced with exactly the same issue. This encounter in Nazareth comes after a chunk of teaching from Jesus. When the Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus, he refused, but responded by teaching the listening crowds what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. It's not about the blindingly obvious, but the hidden treasure And it's also not the case that everyone will get it, or will get in. And the two paragraphs that we've just heard illustrate that teaching perfectly. Jesus leaves the area where he's been teaching and goes home to Nazareth. Now I wonder what picture you have in your head of Nazareth. Today, Nazareth is the largest Arab city in Israel, and I guess the sort of bustling, busy place most of us imagine Jesus growing up. But first century Nazareth could not have been more different. It was a small Jewish village, probably with no more than 400 people and covering about 10 acres. In reality, it was probably little more than a gathering of several extended families who would have all known Jesus very well. When he returned to Nazareth, he wasn't going to a city or even a town full of people who'd moved in since he grew up. They all knew him, but not in the way the following crowds knew him. These people had watched him grow up. They'd watched him play outside their houses. They knew his parents. They knew his siblings. The people of Nazareth knew Jesus in a way no one he'd met since he left did. And so their question, isn't this the carpenter's son, makes sense. They appear confused by the change. This isn't the Jesus they know and love. 
Now they've been hearing stories about him doing amazing things and he has crowds following him. I wonder how many of them had heard about this man called Jesus and the things he was doing and were actually taken aback when he walked into their little village again. Oh, that Jesus! I didn't realise you meant Mary's son. Well, that makes everything different. And not in a good way. The fact that they know Jesus from his early life doesn't help them accept him now. In fact, it makes it harder. When I started training as a reader and then became a full-time ministry apprentice, it was in the church I'd grown up in. Apart from a few rebellious teenage years and a few years when we were first married, I'd been a member of that church my whole life. I started reader training at the age of 29 and had joined the church at two and a half. Some of the people in the congregation had been there my entire life. They'd been my babysitters. They'd been my Sunday school teachers. They'd watched me grow from a toddler and the tantrums that went with that. They'd put up with me when I was a bolshy teenager. These were the people who taught me to read the Bible and helped me to understand it. And now I was preaching to them. I was the youngest reader to train in Chester Diocese for nearly 50 years. And they didn't let me forget it. They were very proud of it. Don't get me wrong, the majority of people in the church were loving and supportive and encouraging. And very, very few said anything negative. But I know that there were those who thought that I was too young. Certainly too young to be preaching in that church. Who did I think I was preaching to them? And to be honest, I agreed with them for a very long time. And if I'm honest, when I'm feeling less than strong, those are the voices that I still hear. And that's what you hear in the accusations of the people in Nazareth as Jesus teaches them. Who does he think he is? He comes waltzing in here trying to teach us. He's not trained. He's not a rabbi. He's just a local boy. He's nothing special. Matthew says that they took offence at Jesus. But the word translated as offended tells us two things. Firstly, it's in the imperfect tense, which means that Matthew is actually telling us that they were being offended by him. It wasn't just a one-off thing. And the word uh, for teaching, it says Jesus was teaching them, is used in the same way. Jesus was teaching them and they were becoming offended. The more Jesus stood in their synagogue and taught, the more offended they became. And secondly, the word literally means stumbled. They stumbled at him. Romans 9.30 says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You see, it appears from our passage in Matthew that the people are rejecting Jesus and attacking him. But in reality, their problem is not with him. 
We see exactly the same thing with Herod and John. It looks as though Herod just wants to get rid of John. But his problem isn't actually with John. His problem is with what John is saying. The problem that Herod and the people of Nazareth have isn't with the messengers. It's with the message. Herod wants to shut John up. Why? Because deep down he knows John is right. Herod has done the wrong thing with his brother's wife and he knows it. And John won't let him forget it. So the solution is to get rid of John. He's too afraid of the people to kill him until he's backed into a corner by Herodias and her daughter. So he has John thrown in prison where he doesn't have to listen to him and he can pretend everything is okay. The crowds become more and more offended by Jesus, not because of who he is, but because of what he's teaching. Up to this point, they've been slavishly following the Pharisees, doing what they teach, trying to obtain righteousness by works which is hard work, and they fail. But it's okay, because they know where the boundaries are. They understand how it works. Get it right, and you'll be okay. But now Jesus is demanding faith. He's asking for sacrifice, not of lambs and doves in the temple, but of their very lives. What he's offering is the greatest treasure on earth, but it is costly. And they don't want to hear that. And our world today doesn't want to hear that. Cost and sacrifice are not popular words in our world. The world world wants to hear that they can do what they like. The world wants to hear it doesn't matter which path you choose, heaven is waiting for you. The world wants to hear that we're all just accidents anyway, so nothing you do matters. So enjoy it. Eat, drink, be merry. Live your way by your rules. As long as you're not hurting anyone, no one can tell you that they're wrong. And yet, there's something in the crowd's response that shows what is really going on when they attack Jesus. Matthew says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Their problem is that what Jesus is saying makes sense. He's talking with great authority, and it is undeniable. They can't argue with the message, and that's a very uncomfortable place to be. The realisation that what Jesus is offering is, in fact, the greatest treasure on earth, but that having it will demand sacrifice. That doesn't sit comfortably with anyone. Think of the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. He knows... There's something missing. He's already worked out that what Jesus is offering is worth having. And yet he goes away sad because he can't give what it will cost. But he's only sad because he knows what Jesus is offering. If he wasn't convinced that it was the best thing he'd ever be offered, he wouldn't have been bothered. But I wonder what that young man said when he got home and his wife asked him what Jesus had said. Did he tell the truth and admit that he just couldn't pay the price? Or by that point, had he worked out a way to dismiss Jesus? Oh, him, he's a crackpot. He said he had to sell everything I owned and then follow him. He's clearly mad. The people in Nazareth do the same thing. They recognise that Jesus has great wisdom and power. They can't argue with it. 
And so because they can't argue with the message as much as they'd like to, they question the authenticity of the messenger. While preparing for this, I read this statement. Unbelief shifts attention away from the truth to the insignificant and trivial as a means of escape or self-justification. Let me say that again. Unbelief shifts attention away from the truth to the insignificant and trivial as a means of escape or self-justification. The crowd divert attention from what Jesus is saying to the entirely irrelevant fact that his mother and siblings are there. They don't have to feel guilty about ignoring what Jesus says, which in their hearts they know to be true, if they can cast doubt on who Jesus really is. And people will do that today. All the reasons for not believing, all the criticisms levelled at the church, all the Christian bashing that goes on in the media are just a diversion. They're a smokescreen, a way of shifting attention away from the truth, self-justification for non-belief. Now, I'm not saying that we're not guilty sometimes of adding fuel to the fire. But even if we didn't, the world would find another diversion. So when someone says, for example, that there's too little historical evidence that Jesus even existed, they're not asking for proof. They're not asking for that witty comeback when we all say, well, there's actually more evidence for Jesus than there is for Caesar. They don't want proof. They've just found a way to justify not engaging with Jesus. Now, it presents us with a huge challenge. But I hope it's at least a little encouraging to know that it's not Christians the world doesn't like. It's the message we have to share. God's people have faced this issue for thousands of years. When Israel demanded a king, Samuel felt rejected by them. But God reassured him it wasn't Samuel they'd rejected, it was God. The challenge is this, though. If if it's not us that the world is rejecting, but the message, what do we do with our message? Should we big up the benefits of faith and play down the cost? A lot of churches have done that. Should we tell people that when you give your life to Jesus, all your problems go away? Too many churches have done that. Should we go the other way and tell everyone they're going to burn in hell if they don't believe? Too many churches have done that. Should we spend our time fighting fires, trying to answer every reason for unbelief? Perhaps we should just not say anything and put a big bowl over our light. Or should we do what Paul did? Paul said, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul never changed his message. He never faltered, no matter what the world threw at him. He sacrificed everything, but never backed down, because he knew it wasn't him who was being rejected, but God. Across the world, and for 2,000 years, Christians have refused to back down from the truth of the gospel, even to the point of death. The world is desperately searching for grounds for unbelief, justification, for a lack of faith. Why don't people, more people become Christians? It's not because of a lack of proof, but a love of sin. 
A message that calls this world to reject sin, no matter how good it makes them feel or how free it convinces them they are, will never sit comfortably. But we are not called to make this world a comfortable place. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The gospel is not comfortable. It does not allow us to continue in our worldly way of life unchallenged. The gospel convicts, the gospel disturbs, the gospel unsettles and the gospel demands. But the gospel is good news. Because the gospel and only the gospel brings forgiveness. The gospel and only the gospel brings peace. The gospel and only the gospel brings freedom. And the gospel and only the gospel brings everlasting life in glory. That is our message. And it doesn't need changing. The gospel we believe in is good news for everybody. And it doesn't need changing so that more people will accept it. A changed gospel is no gospel at all. And I think Paul would agree. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen.